Ooh, now I'm so curious, you're driving me crazy. Hello friends, and welcome to another episode of 119, the Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Nick. I am joined, of course, by Dylan. Hi, Dylan. Hi, Nick. And today we are really, really happy to be joined by somebody who I think within the past year or so, really since the return ended, has really made a name for himself in the community with some really, really well-produced videos uh, about the return and really just about Twin Peaks in general. Uh, We are here with Take the Ring, a.k.a. Jeremiah. Thanks so much for being on with us, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so for those that don't know, uh, you run a... YouTube channel that's called Take the Ring, where you tackle a variety of subjects related to the return. Um, I first became aware of you because of the split screen event that was um, thrown by Matt Zoller Seitz, uh, the great film critic whose work I follow pretty closely. Um, and I actually saw the video from that event, um, which I shared with Dylan some time ago. Uh, and your video was part of those, uh, presentations, your, your video that was all about sort of Judy and Cooper and Laura and sort of the broad strokes of that whole, that whole plan. And, uh, I remember thinking, wow, this is like a really, really (laughs) excellent video. And then, uh, I saw your video started making the rounds again on YouTube and that you started to post more stuff. And, um, yeah, I've, I've been a, a big fan, uh, ever since. Um, for those who don't know, do you want to just introduce yourself a little bit and just give us some idea of, uh, your history with the show? Yeah. Um, thanks. My name is Jeremiah Beaver. I'm, uh, uh, 39 years old. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana, and I've been a Twin Peaks fan for, let's say 20 years, uh, ish. More, maybe 22, 23 at this point. Um, so I didn't, I was a little too young to see it live. And uh, it was on when I was about 10. So about the time I was 14, 15, so maybe 94, 95 ish. Um, I got into, uh, you know, was getting into movies and indie movies. He's a big Tarantino guy and started getting into like indie films. And uh, my uh, Spanish teacher in high school was like, oh, you'd like this movie called Blue Velvet. And and then the rest is history, and i just been a David Lynch fan ever since. So, yeah, since like 95-ish. And uh, immediately, uh, I was... So, I guess that's like personal confession time. I know one of you, I can't remember, one of you guys is in the same boat. But um, So I saw Blue Velvet, and I was totally freaking out. I thought it was amazing. And then there's this uh, UCD and record shop in uh, where I grew up, and this cool guy worked there, and I was telling him about it. And he's like, oh, well, you got to see Twin Peaks. And I'm like, what's Twin Peaks? So I was like, that TV show from a couple years back. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's David Lynch. I was like, oh, holy crap, that's awesome. So uh, I ran next door. Our, the video rental store was, uh, you know, basically next door. And 
I went in there and the only thing they had was fire walk with me. And I went back and I was like, Hey, well, all they got is fire walk with me. And that's like a prequel or something. Right. And he was like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, can I watch it? Cause it's all they had. And I was super amped. And I like really wanted to watch it. He was like, yeah, I guess it's okay. I mean, I, I don't know. I was like, great. So I, I rented it. So I as well watched fire walk with me first. So this mm. was all, all completely out of context, totally new right out of the gate. Like, freaked me out blew my mind totally confused me i was it was just this weird so it did in a way kind of ruin my you know spoiler alert about the you know who killed laura palmer and on the <laughs> other hand so it was a few years later so i was just so amped and i i had a you know after school and weekend job so i always had money going and so like i rented fire walk me watched it you know maybe a week or two later went back and uh, got the pilot and watched it and then um I forget who put it out, but we had a, a Suncoast at the mall at the time, and uh, they had the VHS box set, and uh, which was like a hundred bucks or something. But it was all twenty nine episodes. It was everything but the pilot and Fire Walk with Me. So, uh, so I went out like I got a Christmas bonus check or something. I, I bought the whole thing, and I like binge watched the entire series in like a, like a couple weeks, you know, maybe a month or less. So I was binge I was binge watching before it was cool I guess no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but yeah I, I forget one of you guys one of you guys is in the same boat right watch Firewalk with me first yeah that was me yeah <laughs> I I also watched Firewalk with me first although it, it sadly did not lead to me uh, becoming more curious about Twin Peaks uh, I ultimately became less curious about it I've told that story yeah. more than once before but yeah, um, I, yeah no I was, uh, yeah I was in the same boat. Yeah, it's definitely. I I I would not recommend it if someone says, "What should I, no. I watch first? Yeah, start with the start with the original show. However, uh, if if you do watch it first, it's not like everything. Yeah, that one spoiler is kind of big, but um, uh, I kind of wouldn't trade that experience for the world now. Looking back, because this this is like it's the genesis of. I think it connects the old stuff and the new stuff, and and. Uh, you know, it's like the prologue and the epilogue of the original show and connects to the return. And it was the first thing I experienced. And so other than, you know, the big spoiler, uh, it just like I like the the arm and electricity and the red room and all that stuff was kind of like, you know, the palette was already expanded. And then I just kind of had to go back and then watch the show and see how the, all that fit together. And it was super weird, but. Um, right. ultimately I, I, I ultimately I don't mind it looking back I have to say like even though I did watch Firewalk with me after the fact so the whole first run of the show was a mystery to me the like the revelation of who killed Lara Palmer although like I you know I have a memory of it being exciting and like mind-blowing and all that but it doesn't like factor into like the things that i really really love about twin peaks in general so like i like all those things are there sort of uh you know like the mythology and all the symbolism and just the aesthetic of it like all the things that i really love about it um are you know not dependent on that first mystery so i think it's a forgivable sin we'll say mm-hmm <laughs> Yeah, it does it does give you an interesting framework with which to watch the rest of the show. You know, when you're not just wondering constantly like like who killed Laura Palmer? Like, 
could it be Andy? Like, or like when you're not, when your head isn't filled <laughs> with like these dumb questions, it's uh, in a way it kind of frees you up a little bit to sort of look at uh, the breadcrumbs that were there from the beginning, leading you to believe that maybe Leland was the killer. Um, you know, of course, mm-hmm. there's the infamous funeral scene with him on top of the coffin and everything like that. The show just reads a little bit differently in general if you already know um, the answer to that question. So it's not like a show-breaking spoiler, but um, I do admit I I wish that I had gotten that experience that people who watched the show originally had with it. You know, it was pretty cool. Got to say, <laughs> yeah. So you said that the um the VHS package that you got did not include the pilot. Is that right? Right. So, uh, I don't want to get too geeky here, but basically in my, and so I watched firewalk with me, which is the theatrical version of the, and it was on VHS tape to rent. Now, the other thing is people might not know this, but the, the version of the pilot to rent or buy in the you know early '90s, was it was the international version of the uh, pilot. Okay. It was the full two-hour. So not only that, so I watched Fire Walk with Me, and then I watched the international version of the pilot, which the last 20 minutes is all, all Bob and Boiler Room and Mike and the Red Red Room yeah. and all that. So like, I'm just like totally primed, like thinking that this is the whole show, you know. And so then it was like. A month or two later, I saved up my money and I got. So then it it was the the VHS box that was labeled like um, episode one. Like episode one is not the pilot. Episode one right, is right. episode one, right? So it was one through twenty nine. It was on five tapes, five VHS tapes. So in my mind, I mean, this is just uh, me personally. I mean, I. It doesn't. Have, it's different for everybody, but so in my mind, the pilot is the international version of the pilot. Like I know that it's all that stuff was chopped up to make Cooper's dream, and they worked it into the show for like the regular audience. But like that's the version I prefer. That's the one that I like. I like that you get the preview. Like the, I mean, you can write it off as Cooper's dream if you want, and then they just kind of touch on it later. But anyway, so the you know the first two things I watched at Twin Peaks had tons of the red room and that kind of stuff. And then I, I went out and bought the set and started going through it. And it was like a whole new thing, like bare bones from the get go. Cause there's no, you know, there's no giant. There's no, uh, right. you don't get to, you don't get to Coop, you don't get to Cooper's dreams and, and the red room and Laura and all that stuff till, you know, second, third, fourth episode when he starts having the visions and things. Um, but yeah. And then I just like, I just like, plowed through that whole 29 episodes in you know a couple couple weeks and then i just i had that had that box set for years and years i'd let friends borrow it i mean we just like wore that thing (laughs) wore it down so when it finally came out on dvd and then later on blu-ray it was just like wow this looks amazing it's like yeah because i spent 15 years watching it on vhs (laughs) tapes right uh yeah it's amazing i that's so interesting that that was your um, that that was your intro to Twin Peaks, you know, the Firewalk with Me, and then the European pilot because I feel like that has way more in terms of the supernatural aspect of it 
than the majority of the show has. Because I, I always feel like every time I go back and I watch the original run, I always kind of misremember how much of that stuff is actually in the show. Because it's really not that much. Like, there aren't really that many scenes in terms of, like, the Red Room and Bob. I think they're just... Each instance of it is so intensely memorable that they tend to loom larger in the mind. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess we should just go ahead and uh, dive into what we're here to talk about today, uh, which is Firewalk With Me. Uh, Yeah, so let's talk about it. Um, this film has, over the years, undergone a transformation in terms of perception that I think is very rare amongst films, or really just art in general. Like, obviously, as everyone knows, the film was very widely despised. When it was released, it was a film that nobody really wanted from David Lynch at that point. You know, people were sort of over Twin Peaks and weren't really down for this extremely dark and surreal vision that he had for it. Um, You know, and there were numerous reasons that Firewalk With Me did not do well, either critically or commercially. But now, and I feel like especially since the return has happened, I feel like it's it's actually pretty rare to come across a Twin Peaks fan who is just like anti-Firewalk with me. I feel like for the most part, the consensus around the film is has become like pretty close to universally positive. Is that the sense that you guys get as well? Yeah, definitely. At least in terms of Twin Peaks fans. Like I haven't seen a Twin Peaks yeah. fan that that is hated on Firewalk with me in, in in quite a while, and I think you're right. I think it does have a lot to do with the fact that the return is uh, such a fitting counterpart, or maybe we can say Firewalk with me is a fitting counterpart to the return that it it uh, expands like the depth and the breadth of a lot of the very mysterious things we see in Firewalk with me without actually over explaining and uh, overexposing you to it. So. But I, I've definitely, I like, I haven't seen a negative uh, comment about Firewalk with me since the return came out. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it, I agree with all of that. I think that people, yeah, I, I guess I don't really have anything to add. It just, it was not wanted, not and not received well. And yeah, just over the years, I would even say, even like maybe twenty. I really noticed this. I mean, obviously. 2014 when the uh, entire mystery box set came out and it firewalk with me had you know a good you know hd transfer and the sound was all souped up and it was on widescreen and you know uh and then you had it all sitting there in context with with the with the rest of the series and uh, so anyway that's about the time i rewatched everything and i was like oh yeah i forgot it's one of the favorite shows ever and and firewalk me still great so i, th- I thought firewalk with me was great when i first saw it but again this is probably 95 it came out in 92 so i didn't i didn't get the brunt of all the backlash but then you look at look at looked it up and it was like oh man everybody hated this 
And I thought, I thought it was weird and wild and opened up Twin Peaks. And I, like, I, I thought it was cool, but then you watch the whole show and you realize, okay, like, this is what, this is what most people saw. This is what most people loved. And Fire Walk with Me is just kind of this one off. And now, you know, 20 years later or whatever, and people, when they look at that in context of the other pieces, it's like, you can't, you can't have the return without it. Like it's, it's the crucial thing that like connects every, Philip Jeffries, Judy, uh, you know, uh, the convenience store, uh, the The ring, ring. um, you know, uh, Bob Bob and Laura. And like, it's really the most uh, like honest and personal portrayal of Laura that you, that you actually get, you know, cause she's basically a, a memory in the original show and she's some sort of phantom golden orb in the return. And like, but this is like her story, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, and, and with content and again, so, but people, you get five, 10 years out of some of these things then you can, you know, I, I can't remember when you guys said you guys first watched all this stuff, but the, uh, um, it, yeah, I guess I don't know what else to say. It just it connects everything and it and it works perfectly. And people that didn't have to experience, because I admit, if I'd watch the show live and then it, and it ended on this big cliffhanger, and then they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna make a movie," and I'm like, "Hell yeah!" And you go to the, you go to the movie theater and watch it, and it's like, "Jeez, it's like okay, well, we already mm-hmm. know, know Laura's. You already know Laura's dead. You already know Leland's a killer. You already know all of this stuff that most prequels, I think, in general, are not very good." Because they spend the whole time, either, either everything is spoiled because you know what's going to ultimately happen, or um, they spend all their time trying to connect it to the original work, and it usually ends up not being very good. So, but Lynch, back then, made something completely different and how he wanted to do it, and and I think that's why it holds up because it's not just like mm-hmm. some crappy, you know, the '80s and even the '90s was all about like getting. You know, they get these TV shows and they have reunion shows and holiday specials and stupid, you know what I mean? So at least we got Fire Walk with Me, which is interesting and new and different and kind of stands the test of time. At least modern audiences can watch it and get a lot out of it as opposed to like right. some crappy t- some crappy TV reunion <laughs> or something. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, I think I think the reason it holds up is because. Like you said, it's not just it's not just an information delivery system. Like it's not there to to like fill in all these blanks that you were left with at the end of season two. Like it's not concerned about that at all. Instead, it's really focused on um, humanizing Laura Palmer and really breathing life into this character that had existed, uh, you know, merely as a symbol on the show before that. And that's why I think it holds up on repeated viewings is because that effort to humanize Laura Palmer and to place her in her shoes is just, uh, is depicted so powerfully. Um, and I think like if it had just been a, a matter of like, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and making sure that everybody's questions were answered from season two, I don't think that, uh, people today would have, would have such a strong emotional reaction to it that they do. Um, 
and yeah, and now that the return is out, all these scenes that felt like really strange one-offs, you know, like the Philadelphia FBI office scene, for example, they now just, there's so much added depth to them and they just, they feel very significant and uh, in some cases feel like really essential scenes. Um, so it's really fascinating to watch this film now since the return has ended because, um, you know, while I think that the experience is largely the same in terms of its emotional content, it has just this greater context to it as far as all the, the symbology and the iconography and all that stuff. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a fascinating thing. I, I, like I said, I, I can't really think of another example like this where a film has just undergone such a radical reevaluation and recontextualization in this time. It's, um, it's pretty remarkable. So. Agreed. Yeah. So, um, now that we've just spoken generally about the film, why don't we talk about what actually happens in it? Um, the film opens first of all with this opening credit sequence that I love because it features that absolutely beautiful Angelo Badalamenti score which first of all I love the score for this film like the uh, Angelo's score for Firewalk With Me is on regular Spotify rotation for me personally I I really enjoy it thoroughly yeah it's fantastic it really does like pull you in right right at the beginning when as soon as you see that static like if you've seen this film before like this that the sounds and like the atmosphere it's like I don't know for me it has this like it's foreboding but it's also kind of pretty and it's 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 got a lot going on Yeah, I agree. Um the soundtrack's great. Um I love the I just love that opening sequence in general. Like, again, I didn't get this when I was younger, but like, you know, more recently, you know, it, it's, it, it, Lynch is very honest when he, when you kind of like break down a lot of the, what like this uh, symbolism and things is like right out of the get go. It's a, it's a static TV, right? It's like the signal has been cut and they're like, he's thrown us signals. Like this is not twin peaks. This is not the TV show. This, mm-hmm. this is not twin peaks. It's not like, so it's a static TV with the signal cut and you're watching the white noise, which looks uh, like in this awesome kind of blue. Right. And then the camera pulls back and you see a TV and then someone literally smashes a TV. Right. <laughs> so it's like, this is not the TV show. This is not the TV show. But yeah, and again, and then there's the music, of course, which is, which is all calm. So you're all calm and chilled out. And then the, the hammer or whatever comes in and uh, busts it up. <laughs> yeah, David Lynch, not a subtle director, I would say. No. <laughs> the problem is, it's just he's his, his, the symbol, the symbols and the, the imagery is is all over the place. So sometimes it's like, is this a direct metaphor, or is he just being a goofball, or you know, like he's all over the place with sure. tone and stuff. So it's, it's hard to sort that out, you know. Mm-hmm. But. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. But in this particular case, like when you see uh, the TV literally being smashed, it's like, okay, I think, I think, I, I think I understand what's being communicated here. Yeah, you know, it's not right. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know, 
It's pretty pretty blunt on his part. Um, but yeah, so we get that, and then we get the shot of Teresa floating down the river, and the death of Teresa Banks is really going to be the catalyst for everything that happens, at least for the first 30 minutes or so of this film, uh, which has nothing at all to do with Twin Peaks. Uh, in fact, it has to do with the adventures of Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley, uh, who are investigating the murder of Teresa Banks. And I, I honestly can't imagine what people in the theater must have been thinking during all of these scenes, <laughs> because it is such a bizarre prologue, and it goes on for quite a while. That I, I just, I would really love to, like, go back in time and put myself in the shoes of somebody who is just sitting there thinking, like, what the hell is this? Where's Asian Cooper? Where's Harry Truman? Like, what, <laughs> what on earth is going on here? But, um, I have to say, I, I really do love all this stuff. Um, I love this sort of bizarro image of Twin Peaks that we get here, the sort of mirror funhouse image of a lot of the people and tropes that we recognize from the show. What do you guys think? Yeah, I like the whole fact. I like just that this is so removed from a lot of, from basically everything else that happens in Fire Walk With Me and everything else that happens in Twin Peaks ever in general. There's this, this is like a little slice that we get, this little kind of vignette and um, I never really thought about that either, that that it's kind of like a, a mirror image of, you know, our introduction to Twin Peaks. Uh, but we get all these sort of cantankerous uh, kind of jerks and not the the heartwarming, you know, cherry pie. But uh, Chet Desmond has always been among my favorite mysteries in Twin Peaks. And um, I, I love revisiting uh revisiting this this little slice just because you don't get that much of them but uh i think that it it really i know that i the first time i saw it um i watched firewalk with me directly like five minutes after i finished the season two finale uh i just launched directly into it and i was obviously i was expecting some subversion but um, for some reason, my head never went to like, okay, we're going to get into the heart of the matter of Teresa Banks's murder and see how that connects. It was sort of like a uh, threw me for a big loop. So and I also love the the like sort of nocturne, like noir uh, soundtrack that's kind of permeates the whole like, like about right. 20 minutes straight of just this um, this kind of classic spy sounding uh investigation music it it um it really puts you in a time and place and there's there's too many great little moments that i'm sure we'll we'll talk about but yeah I, i'm a huge fan of this whole sequence yeah me too chad desmond and sam stanley and so that, again this was like my intro to the whole thing but uh even that being said that it still holds up for me i, I love yeah, Chris Isaac's just like super cool, and uh, Kiefer Sutherland's doing the kind of 
he did this. He he has a movie Dark City, and so where he plays kind of a, you know kind of a quirky weirdo guy. Mm-hmm. You know, this is years mm-hmm. before Twenty Four and all that stuff. But like, uh, he you know he's really good at kind of being a character actor. And but yeah, the you know again this is all because of context and you know year, being years later they're revisiting this stuff. But yeah, it's Deer Meadow is totally another signal. Like we're not in Twin Peaks. We're not in Twin Peaks. Like. Lucy and Andy are the guy, the, the deputy, and the they're, they're a bunch of jerks, and the sheriff is a jerk, and Hap's diner is a dump, and uh, the Norma of, of Hap's diner is kind of mean, and I mean everything is just bad. Everything's bad <laughs> from the from the get. Everything about Deer Meadow is is bad, <laughs> or or the opposite of Twin Peaks, you know. Yeah, I don't know about you, Jeremiah, but um because we got all this stuff with Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland in here, I, when I was watching the show, I just kept waiting for them to show up. Like I was, I thought, I thought for sure, like, Oh, well, um, you know, Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley, like they're obviously going to show up in the show. Like those are clearly beloved characters from twin peaks that, (laughs) uh, that we're going to catch up with later down the line. And I was just so, so baffled when I got to the end of the series and kind of realized like, Oh yeah. Like those guys never actually came back. That is so wild. Yeah. Yeah. And even them, they, they themselves are. So, uh, you know, Kyle McLaughlin did one really hyped to do, to do the movie. And so a lot of this stuff was rewritten and they changed it yep. to Chet Desmond and Chet Desmond is, is a CD initials, which is the opposite of Dale Cooper DC. So you've right. kind of got your, uh, and he's, he's not afraid to grab somebody by the nose. He's not afraid to be, you know, like he's, he's not Dale Cooper. Cooper is great, heart of gold, all that, but he's like respectful and I wouldn't say timid, but he's not going to like get in somebody's face or whatever. But Chad Desmond, like right out of the gate, especially in the missing pieces context, like he's kind of a badass. He doesn't take crap from anybody, but he, you know, and, and uh, I always saw Sam, Sam, Sam Stanley as kind of a uh, an, an alternate Albert, you know, the science guy, the forensics guy that's got a quirky, or a quirky attitude or like a personality. To, you know, Albert is kind of aggressive and he's all insulting and he's, you know, definitely. But Sam Stanley's kind of a goofy, weird, kind of quiet, questioning. You know, he's a little, you know. So this is your alternate Dale Cooper and Albert Rosenfield is as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Sam Stanley is like the sort of meek and uh, nerdy Albert, which I really enjoy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> so really, so we get we get a pretty weird intro here to these characters because the first time we see him, we see Chet Desmond making some sort of arrest. <laughs> He's like arresting some girls outside of a school bus that's just, like, filled with all these crying children. I always found this very funny, just because, like, we never get any context for it. And it's just such a bizarre scene. They're, like, out in the middle of a field somewhere with this bus full of, like, screaming kids. And there's just no explanation given. I I always really like that. I love it, too. It's, like, one of those moments in The Return, like, in the detective's office where there's just the people screaming obscenities in the background that just never gets, like, the pink <laughs> elephant in the room situation. Um, just one, Or, yeah. like, the whole the whole congressman's dilemma bit. Um, it's just, yeah, 
it, it that <laughs> the image speaks so much more than like an explanation ever could. It's like, hmm, why is there a school bus of crying children? I don't know. Use your imagination. It's just, a, it's just like, it's just like a funny and bizarre image. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. Like, it's just, it's such a odd way to introduce this character. I think. Um, but yeah, so there's that, and then we get another pretty atypical shot not just for the show but for lynch in general which is this first person camera view from inside the airplane that chet desmond takes um like this to me is as big a signal as any that we're just in a very different place than the show right because we never really see a shot this lavish and expensive throughout the entire show and it's very brief but um watching it this time around i was really uh, really kind of jarred by it it's fascinating yeah it's like the uh like the that first opening shot of new york city in the return which is sort of like nope we're not in kansas anymore like this we're going outside of twin peaks now into this wider world with a much um with a much broader scope where a lot more things can happen that you might not expect. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a great little signal. Yeah. 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 Agreed. Yeah. And then, um, so right after this is where Chet Desmond meets Sam Stanley played, uh, as we mentioned by Kiefer Sutherland, who like on the list of actors that I always forget is part of the Lynch universe. Kiefer Sutherland is probably at the top. Like, I just, I always forget, like, oh, yeah, he's worked with Lynch, too. It's always so weird. Um, but, yeah, I, I love him as as Sam Stanley. And uh, we get a pretty iconic scene right here with um, this woman, Lil, doing her, like, a series of pantomimes that ends up being a clue. Uh, and... This is ultimately our introduction to the concept of the Blue Rose as well, which is something that, of course, is expanded upon in shockingly (laughs) great detail uh, in The Return. I don't think anybody expected us to get so much in the way of, like, Blue Rose significance um, in The Return. Uh, I, I... I, with regards to this whole thing, I, I have a question. I guess I'll, I'll uh, direct it at you, Jeremiah. Why do you think the Teresa Banks murder was considered a Blue Rose case? Yeah, well, that's the uh, that's the twenty five thousand dollar question, I guess. But um... <laughs> right. So just, you know, for listeners and, you know, context or whatever, like, so yeah, blue rose, this, this was it, the Lil wearing the blue rose on the dress and the explanation that Chet Desmond gives Sam Stanley, you know, for 30 years, 25 years, that's it. That's all anybody knew about the blue rose. And all it was, was, was an inference people. And then if you met a Twin Peaks fan or whatever, people, what's the blue rose? It's like, well, it's obviously these type of cases. Is like a Bob type case or a serial killer type case or something that Gordon is involved, you know, like these uh, special 
assignments that might have something supernatural going on maybe and then the blue rose was on uh, they used it in the artwork of the 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 dvd box set and uh or the blu-ray box set and so yeah and then the, the secret history book and final dossier and the return the concept of blue rose has been expanded like a million times and now we know about the task force and all this stuff but in the context of this movie by itself yeah that's all we get and the short answer is i have no idea <laughs> I was thinking about this recently when I I just I just rewatched it actually uh yesterday uh to get ready for this and I mean this is one of those things that's never talked about never discussed never referenced it's not in any of the books it's not like no one knows the Teresa Banks thing I if I'm doing fan fiction in my head or something to try to connect the dots I think that uh you know Gordon Cole and Philip Jeffries started the task force a long time ago according to the books and um, you know, you could argue that, uh, uh, you know, in, in the return, you could argue that Laura is kind of an, her gold orb is an antidote to Bob's orb and that, you know, maybe, maybe they've been tracking it based on how the secret history is. There's like UFO stuff and there's Dougie Milford and, and the Blue Roses. Supposedly the FBI and Project Blue Book guys have been tracking this stuff or keeping records of this stuff for a long time. So all I, all I think of it in my mind is that uh, they were monitoring some sort of uh, disturbance or Major Briggs' station picked something up, like something supernatural cued in Gordon Cole to this area and then when they found, they heard that this murder, this girl was killed they were just like, okay, this might have something to do with the kind of stuff we're looking into, so send out the boys to check it out, kind of thing. That's all I got. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's <laughs> that's pretty much all I got too. I mean the real you know the real explanation here is that you know David Lynch and Robert Ingalls, with whom he co-wrote the screenplay, didn't know that the Blue Rose was going to end up being this this huge thing, so they didn't bother to try and um, connect the dots strongly between Teresa Banks and the Blue Rose. But um, you know, I guess in in the head canon, you sort of have to believe that there was something about this murder that tipped them off to something supernatural. We just don't know what that thing is, you know? Right. And, um, right. Um, although we do know, uh, as alluded to eventually in the return that Cooper was in on this whole blue rose thing as well. And in the missing pieces, there's a brief scene with he and Sam Stanley where, uh, you know, Stanley sort of asked him about the blue rose and Cooper's like, I'm not going to tell you about that. You know what I mean? So, right. Um, so it all, you know, it makes a, it makes a loose kind of fit, but, uh, you know, still, it's not a, it's not a lore breaking, uh, assumption. Uh, nevertheless, the only think, other pieces so. I can think of are just that, uh, the, the fonts were at the fat trout, uh, where Teresa Banks lived and also Carl Rod, uh, I believe has like, he is similar to like the log lady. I haven't read secret history, so I don't know for sure, but I know that that is like, they were both, I think abducted when they were younger or something like that. And Carl Rod mentions that. So that whole thing could be related to why, you know, the FBI had their eyes and ears in that neighborhood. And then when this young girl gets murdered right there, um, like you said, Jeremiah, we'll send everyone out to go check it out. Yeah, I think uh, you're, you're basically 
Right. Uh, I, especially with Carl Rod in the return, like he, he's very similar to the log lady, but I don't know how much of that was set up. Kept. I don't know how much they had in mind in this movie. Cause we're going to see him here in a little bit, but um, you know, he says I've been places and then you find out in the secret history that he was abducted and mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of a grumpy, grumpy, frumpy old man in, <laughs> in Deer Meadow. And then in, in the return, he's, 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 He's moved the trailer park closer to Twin Peaks, and he seems to be more of a, you know, caring, grandfatherly, kind of a guiding light type person, which kind of fits into Catherine. But, yeah, the fact that he's been touched by touched by others is kind of set up in Fire Walk With Me when the has that moment in the trailer the park. And he says, I've been places. Right. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we get the the Lil the Lil scene, all her all her fun little pantomimes here. Uh, we get the now famous sh- shot of Lynch holding his hand like upside down over his face, which uh, which I always enjoy. Um, and that's pretty much it. We get a scene immediately following this where uh chet sort of reveals the logic behind all of the uh you know all all of the pantomiming that lil is doing um and from there we go like like we mentioned before to the deer meadow (laughs) sheriff station which is just a, a perfect mirror image uh, I guess reverse mirror image of the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, right down to the fact that if you look in the background, you can see that the coffee pot is totally empty. Uh, right next to Sam Stanley there, which is a a detail that I I just I barely just noticed this time around. Uh, and yeah, just everybody here is just like a total dick. Uh, this mustachioed mm-hmm. cop is really aggressive. The receptionist is just reading a book unattentively. She starts laughing mockingly at them at one point. Um, and yeah, they Chet and Stanley are basically there to acquire information about the Teresa Banks case. And the police force there is just sort of generally uncooperative, sort of intimidates them a little bit. And, um, so, yeah, Chet, in a very uncooper-like move, a very alpha move, sort of grabs the one cop by the nose, which is, a which is a hilarious gesture. That's just, like, one of many ways in which Chet sort of distinguishes himself from Cooper here. Um, and then he moves on to the, uh, he goes on to meet the sheriff, who just has this gigantic saw hanging on his wall. It's like a big lumber yeah. saw or something like that. Right? That's perfectly weird. Yeah. And um and just to make reference to the missing pieces again, and we should probably mention like we're not going to talk about the entirety of the missing pieces in this episode here, but I like since they are sort of like pseudo canon, like we will be referencing uh, things from that because there are some pretty relevant scenes in there. Um, not all of them because there there are a lot that are just sort of like one off scenes that involve 
characters from the original run, but there are some relevant pieces of information there, as long as some stuff that's just sort of like wacky and weird and and fun to talk about. Mm. Um, And one of those scenes is this ridiculous fight scene that Chet Desmond has with this sheriff who's all about bending steel. Uh, It is like really, it's like the, (laughs) it's like the fight scene from They Live where it's just like insanely freaking long and funny. Uh, I don't know if it's a good scene. I'm kind of glad it's not actually in the movie, but it's uh, I I love the fact that it exists somewhere out in the world. I just love the the cut that made it in of Chet like looking at the the photo of him bending the steel over his head and then just looking at him over his shoulder like <laughs> hmm. <laughs> it just ends there. Uh, it's brilliant. He's like, I could take this motherfucker. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I I agree. The missing pieces are I I consider them like essential. Like you kind of just have to. I mean, you don't have to, but like, man, like a lot of the Philip Jeffries convenience store yeah. Uh, yeah. The context of the ring. Um, there's more stuff with uh, Cooper, like post post trapped in the lodge. Not a lot, but a couple scenes here and there that you know. If, if you kind of view Firewalk Me and the Missing Pieces together, or at least as kind of a, you know, an A side and a B side of this this yeah. type of Twin Peaks or whatever, uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 crucial. So I agree. I'm I'm kind of glad the fight scene's not in the movie. However, like I watch it every time. <laughs> I usually just watch <laughs> I, I usually just watch Firewalk with Me, and then you know maybe the next day or a week later, somewhere around the same time, I'll just go through all the missing pieces again. Uh, it's kind of like yeah. the, uh, you know, it's it's a lot. I mean, it's like you know, it's at least an hour, maybe more. But um, yeah, it's like yeah, a four really, hour uh, half. Yeah, it's ninety minutes. So, um, but yeah, so you've got your uh, yeah, the, the the deputy and the receptionist. They're they're kind of affectionate toward each other. So it's kind of like this town's Lucy and Andy. Right. Right. Except again, this town they're both they're both total jerks and. I don't know if you notice it's I didn't notice this for like years, but uh this deputy is this guy named Cliff Howard. This is the guy that Bobby shoots. I knew it. That's that is that same guy? So yes. Yeah. So this cop whoa, is a crooked whoa, whoa, whoa. cop. Yeah, I knew Wait. that was the same guy. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. He's so, like Chad. Exactly. The idea is this is your first Chad. Crooked piece of shit cop that's wow. running drugs on the side. So, wow. uh, and if you know, like, yeah, well, anyway, so we'll just, let's keep moving. But yeah, that's, so these are not good guys. You know, the sheriff's a no. jerk. I mean, I'm, maybe the sheriff deep down inside is a good lawman or whatever, but at least this deputy, deputy is a scumbag. And uh, this, this town's Lucy is not helpful at all, and she's probably sleeping with the scumbag cop anyway. <laughs> right. Wow, I'm so glad that you pointed that out to me, that that was the same guy, because I never, never occurred to me whatsoever. I don't I don't know how I didn't recognize that mustache, but now that you mention it, totally is the same guy. Right, well, wow. he's wearing, just... in, the, in, the, you know, in the woods, he's wearing a big coat, and it's kind of yeah. all fluffy, and again, like, man, in, in 19... 19- in 1988, a lot of dudes had mustaches and, uh, <laughs> and mullets. So, 
Yeah, ex- mullets and mustaches. Yeah, exactly. So I like I said, well, I didn't notice this for years. I want to say it wasn't until the Blu-rays came out. I was like, wait a minute, and then I was, oh, okay. So, yeah, that's great. That's great. I lo- I love the fact that like I can still learn new things about this this crazy franchise. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. Um. Okay, so we move from there to this autopsy scene where Sam Stanley finds the letter T underneath Teresa's fingernail, which is a scene that uh, is sort of going to be repeated later on. Well, I guess later on in the chronology of the story when Cooper does the um, the autopsy on Laura Palmer and, you know, they they find the, uh, you know, the letter under her fingernail and all that. Um, and from there, Chet and Sam Stanley head over to Hap's Diner, which, like we've mentioned, is sort of the polar opposite of the double R. It's sort of a dumpy, uninviting place with a very unfriendly waitress. I, I just want to mention briefly here, and this is a scene that is expanded upon a little bit in the missing pieces, but uh, before they actually enter the diner proper, they hang out in this little room to the side here where there's a guy who's apparently looks like he's trying to open a safe. It's like, he's like a, he's like trying to weld a safe open. And Mm -hmm. I only, I only really took note of it this time because they're like these giant, electricity flashes and there's like a random bearded man in a flannel that's just sitting nearby and it was impossible for me not to think about the woodsman uh in the convenience store totally and also you know not only from you know the room above the convenience store scene from firewalk with me but also later on when mr c goes through the dutchman's and he has to see philip jeffrey's and there's like the woodsman sitting there who like manipulates that big uh whatever it is that device that makes the electricity flash and diverts him to Philip Jeffries. I was just like, wow. Like this is totally reminiscent of that. I thought it was really neat. Yeah, I didn't even put those two together exactly like that, but now that you're saying it, it is and, and how the the shot is, like with them sort of sitting in the corner, it's really similar to the woodsman yeah. sitting in in the Dutchman's. Yeah, exactly. It's just like yeah. bearded man, flannel, sitting down, electricity flashing. Boom. Yeah, and it's uh it's I I definitely without a doubt um I you know, I think that Lynch thinks that this is really important or this movie is and then uh Frost wasn't involved with this, but when they wrote the return together, I think that they went through all of this stuff um piece by piece and so the woodsman like i didn't again i other than you looking in the credits these dudes in flannel uh that are in the convenience store proper you know i didn't even know they were called the woodsman or what like it was there's such a minor thing to the whole thing and then they turned around in the return and made it into a thing but you're I, i don't know how intentional it was but like that again there's always something going on in this deer meadow stuff that is signaling to evil or darkness. It's either the opposite of twin peaks or there's electricity present. And this is firewalking me is the first thing that really kind of 
tied electricity into the lodge beings, if you will. Like, uh, I don't, mm-hmm. there's, there's not a lot, <clears throat> excuse me, not a lot of that in the original show. Um, you know, there's tingling hands and, and weird hums and stuff, but not like electricity pro- proper. So this is the, the one that kind of evolved the, uh, you know, the flickering light in the hospital basement. Yeah. Now there's flickering lights everywhere. Oh, but then the, so real, real quick, the woodsman guy that you saw, I, I totally didn't, didn't pick this up till recently either that, um, uh, so that dude, that woodsman, the bearded guy, if you notice when they sit down at the, the countertop, that guy comes in from that room, that side room and sits at a table in the back and he's literally in frame between Desmond and Stanley while they're sitting there talking to the waitress. So he gets up and comes in and sits down and he's just kind of this dark bearded guy and he does drink a beer at some point. But anyway, he's kind of hanging out in the background. If you want to add to like some eerie woodsman e type stuff. So he basically hangs out in the in frame with them the whole time in the background. I didn't never notice that before. Before See, yesterday. This is why we this is why we have you on Jeremiah. It's for it's for <laughs> shit like this. For stuff that I totally would not have noticed. But yeah, it's like Yeah, I know it's a, it's like a pretty minor thing to dwell on, but it was just inescapable to me this time, you know, because it's not just like oh, there's minor sparks coming out from his welding apparatus that he's using to open the safe. It's like we get this shot of of um Chet Desmond where the camera is sort of below looking up at him and it's like these flashes from these sparks just fill up the entire space that he's in and the shot looks to me it's like almost nearly identical to the one of Mr. C as he's watching the woodsman uh do his thing and it was just like inescapable to me this time um so yeah I don't like I don't know it, it it's you know, it's always impossible to know with Lynch, like what he intends and what he doesn't. But I, I, I tend to think that this was just sort of a this image, for whatever reason, is just something that really captivated him and stayed on his mind. Um, and I just think it, it's interesting that we we basically got three different iterations of this same scene here. It's very bizarre. Yeah, I think it's totally intentional. I mean, yeah. like, I, I don't think that when they made Fire Walk With Me, he was like, oh, my God, this is going to be the shot. that it's Like, no one knew. But going back in the return, they're like, so the return gets bagged on for being so, and rightfully so, it's like constantly subverting expectations, constantly, like, not giving you what you want, constantly not being Twin Peaks uh, as, it were, as it was. But then, yeah, but there's... There's a thousand of those things like that electricity shot. Exactly. With the woodsman sitting down in the corner. Like I think they went through, I think there's tons and tons and tons of references to the original show. It's just not, not Dale Cooper and cherry pie. So you get frustrated, but I mean, there's, there's right. shots, there's shots and, and sayings that like, I mean, dude, like I'm finding these all the time. I mean, I don't know if this was on purpose, but like, you know, candy with the fly swatting the fly. There's a, fly buzzing around right and then she clobbers the dude with the thing like there's actually a scene in the original show of lucy kind of a, another ditzy blonde sitting around and there's a fly buzzing around the office and she's kind of following it around and i don't think that she ever like you know she doesn't like hit somebody on accident but like 
it's like every time I revisit the old stuff, there's it's like, oh my god, that they totally went back and referenced that, or at least at least at least in the look or the feel or something. So yeah, this basically the gist of the scene here is that Chet is asking this waitress about Teresa Banks because Teresa Banks worked at Hap's Diner and this waitress implies that Teresa had a bit of a cocaine problem here and perhaps most relevantly she mentions that Teresa's arm her left arm went completely dead which we now know is sort of like a side effect of like being in possession of the ring or having the ring on. We're going to see Laura wake up a little bit later, sort of clutching her left arm. And then of course in part three of the return, we get that brief moment with Dougie Jones, the real Dougie Jones, where He's wearing the owl cave ring and his, his, he's like having some trouble with his left arm. And I just thought like of all the things to reference and bring back in the return, I was just, uh, such a neat little, such a neat little thing to bring back. I felt like just that, I don't know. I just, I tend to really enjoy these little connections that maybe don't necessarily have like a ton in the way of plot significance, but it's just like, um, I don't know. It's just like giving weight to the symbology of all this, of all these little things by repeating them and mirroring them back again. Does that make any sense? Like, it's not like, it's not a major detail necessarily that like all these left arms are going numb, but I just, I like the way that it sort of ties everything together in an abstract sense. Yeah, so it's like what you were saying, Nick, about like little things that get recapitulated over and over again. It reminds me of uh, like variations on a theme in music. Like if you listen to like mm-hmm. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, there's this da 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 thing that gets like over and over again throughout like 20 minutes. If you listen to it, different instruments and in different tempos and different keys and different ways are doing this like short, 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 long thing that like you might not instantly recognize but it has this way of like kind of creating this artistic like prosody this thing where everything kind of works together as one and i think that fire walk with me does that really well like in in and of itself but it also like does it really well with the return and how many things got brought back and got referenced again um but it's like the left arm thing you can also i think tie it to like the whole um you know the that's where the ring goes it goes on the ring finger of your on your left arm and the ring finger of your left hand is where teresa banks and laura both had the letter put in so and that's also like the spiritual mound so there's like all of these different contexts that are telling us like there's something up about the left arm and there's something there and it's not like super direct and it keeps getting um, like recontextualized and put in these different um, in these different scenarios. But I think it really does help to um, it it makes it feel like it's 
um, a mystery that although it might not be like, you know, completely solvable, there are so many moving parts and there's all there's just all many, like sorts of connections you can draw between s things that might seem like inane or just um, completely unrelated. Yeah, I uh, absolutely agree. A hundred percent. I think your music analogy is exactly a way to look at it. I, I think that that's kind of how not just Lynch, but like good artists in general, like variations on a theme and all of that, that that's, that's a perfect analogy. I think that's, I think that's kind of how he works. I think that's kind of how they wrote the return. I think that's, again, you know, like I said, they don't, it's, it's it, there's not a whole lot of things that jump out like, Oh, this is old twin peaks. This is old twin peaks, but there's tons of that little stuff buried in there. I just want to real quick about the ring. Uh, so the left arm going dead thing, when I was younger, around the same time I was getting into Twin Peaks, uh, I kind of shocked myself in science class on, on accident, like plugging something in. My finger was touching the thing. And so I got a little electricity jolt up my arm. And basically my arm was like numb for like a little bit, you know, like an hour, a half hour or something. And then the, the whole thing about electricity and the, and the idea that the ring is somehow supernatural or tied to the to the lodge or the lodge beings or the red room or whatever. So I, I always just took the people's arms are going numb because of the ring, because it's electric and related to electricity. So maybe it's just got this little soft energy that if you wear that ring for like, you know, a week or something, maybe your arm would start to go numb or whatever. And that's not, that's just me thinking. So that, that's what's in my mind when I, the, the arm numb thing. That's wow. fascinating. That's really good. I really like that. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's the origin story here. Is that Lynch also got electrocuted in science class, and <laughs> yeah, man. that's 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 why we have all this mythology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so, yeah. Um, from there, the two of them. Um, Chad Desmond, Sam Stanley, they go to Fat Trout Trailer Park. And this is our introduction to this trailer park. And it's also our introduction to Carl Rod, who, like you mentioned, uh, Jeremiah is much more curmudgeonly here than he is in The Return, where he's sort of a much softer, more benevolent figure who I think sort of functions in many ways as like the moral moral center of the show um but here he's he's very short with them they notice the photo of Teresa uh, wearing the owl cave ring so this is the first time that we actually see the ring is that right yes yes yeah I think I think this is the very first time that we see the Alcave ring. Um, okay, I guess th there's things I want to talk about, but we're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk about the ring later. So um, I guess for now, one thing I want to mention is that this dirty old woman shows up. Um, very odd moment here where I just feel like it's one of these moments where Lynch sort of uses physical decrepitude as 
like an like an omen or some sort of harbinger of doom. It's something that he does a lot where it's like it's sort of like the woodsman or like the weird people in Beulah's house where it's like he sort of equates like physical disfigurement and rattiness with um like bad things you know what i mean like this woman she has she's sort of filthy she has dirt all over his face her face she has like a cane she has an ice pack over her eye this to me is just another in a long line of those do you know what i'm saying yeah it's like a roadhouse scene almost where you get these uh the girl scratching her armpits or or any of the, those kinds of scenes where it's it's not it's saying that you know literally people in this condition are bad people it's being used more as like a a sign of like you said uh some sort of decay i think is how you put it before yeah and also we get mm-hmm. like a, a pov shot of this woman walking into the trailer and it's all completely like disoriented and almost like fisheye um like from her perspective which is kind of interesting yeah yeah uh, that shot um so a couple things about this <laughs> the so i don't know what the old woman means i don't know who she is i don't know how significant it is but one you get that pov shot going into the trailer and kind of into darkness or whatever it's very similar to the there's a shot or two like that in the return i can't remember if it's the uh the girl that tells on Richard and he assaults her. I don't know if the camera does that there, but definitely remember the guy that Andy is supposed to meet at four thirty. Yep. And then he yep. then he never he never shows up. And then later on, you get a creepy music shot with the camera slowly going into that guy's trailer. Right. And right. It's it's v- yeah. very very reminiscent of of that shot. And then that lady comes in. Uh, so this is also kind of reminiscent to the the dumpster scene in Mulholland and drive yeah, yeah okay sure. so yeah that would be that would be probably the most famous example of what i'm talking about yeah so i and i don't know how accurate this is but i'm just gonna say it anyway but i believe that lynch somewhere has said either in a book i read or interview or something he uh is terrified or was when he was young of homeless people like not not again like i don't think he's making a broad statement i think that some dirty old creepy man scared him when he was young and and really and i think that this 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 kind of dirty looking woman the creature behind the dumpster mulholland drive the woodsman you're right i think all of this stems from from that that's his personification of scary or whatever and uh also just uh some besides the picture in the ring the picture of the ring in Teresa's apartment you also uh there's a shot of an electrical outlet um and you hear the whoomp, you hear this like little throb that you hear later with chet Desmond by the pole and that same throb is used in the electricity of philip jeffries yeah. when he yeah. shows up in the missing pieces and also there's wood paneling every the whole inside of her trailer is wood paneling which is just right. probably probably more of an aesthetic theme but something to tie it to uh you know twin peaks and mm-hmm wood and logging towns and stuff but that's those are my thoughts on Teresa's trailer yeah yeah and um the other thing that we get introduced 
to here in this scene is the number six pole, like you mentioned. Um, yeah. And the thing that I noticed about this is that in the moment that we cut to that pole, we get this brief moment where the music plays backwards for a second. And then when it cuts away, the music just starts playing again. That's interesting. I didn't oh. notice that. But I did notice that it, yeah. the arms little uh, sound is present every time it shows the number six yeah. pole. And he talks it backwards. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Again, that more clues to electricity, like the whole Philip Jeffries, there's electrical outlets in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when the, when the arm says, I sound like this, that little noise he makes like yeah every every time at least in this movie you see that pole you hear that and you see that then they show the top of the pole with the electrical wire yeah so this is when yeah. when, I was, when i was a kid this was me in my mind started like oh these things maybe like travel through electrical lines or you know there's some some sort of life force is related to electricity also um yeah sorry go ahead Oh yeah, no, no, that's that's all all really good observations. It's just um I don't know. I guess well, I ha- I have a th- I have a thought, but I guess I'll I'll save it for uh a little bit when we we hit on some similar subjects, but for now the upshot of this is that the FBI ends up taking Teresa's body back to Portland, Oregon, I believe. While Chet decides that he is going to pay another visit to the Fat Trout trailer park. He goes there and he finds the Owl Cave ring on this this tiny pile of dirt underneath the trailer. And that's it. That is the end of the Chet Desmond storyline. Uh, forever. We never hear <laughs> anything else about Chet Desmond again, uh, unless you want to count the return in which we learn about, you know, his involvement in the Blue Rose Task Force and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, he is just one of uh, several people like Cooper and like Jeffries who be- who sort of becomes acquainted with this lodgy weirdness and is disappeared somehow from this mortal realm. And that's it. That is it for Chet Desmond in this film. Um, I mean, there's really very little to go on here, but do either of you guys have at least a pet theory about the fate of Chet Desmond? Well... I, I I don't really. I mean, all I can assume is that he maybe put the ring on, and that's that's it. We don't really know exactly how the ring works, even though like we know one function of it is that if you die wearing it, uh, you you get transferred into the red room. But it doesn't say anything. Like it seems like you know Teresa Banks wore it around. Dougie Jones wore it around. Um, but I don't know. That's the the presence of the Let's Rock. Um on the on the windshield to me like i don't know we've never seen like a straight example though of anyone getting like kidnapped by uh anyone from the black lodge as as directly as that would seem to be so i don't really i don't really have have a theory that's why it's like my favorite mystery or one of my favorite mysteries 
Yeah, me too. Uh, one of my favorite mysteries, one of my favorite characters. I got a bunch of theories, but like, again, it's all just like fan theories because there's nothing to go on. Like, so that's the, right. that's the, that's the Chalfonts trailer that he's looking underneath. So we know that Chalfonts, Tremonts, the old woman, the grandson, something that may or may not have become like expanded into like the, the Judy theme or, or whatever. So you got Lodge beings supposedly in that, maybe in that trailer, mm-hmm. maybe they mm-hmm. got him. Uh, you've got, so if you, if you listen, when he gets there and I can't remember how much more is this, more of this is explained in the missing pieces. If there's a shot or, or scene or two, or if this is in the book, but something tells me he, he goes there. He asked for, he asked for Cliff Howard's trailer, deputy cliff. Who's the asshole with the mustache who, yeah. So he goes there to, to, like right. the, Carl's like deputy Cliff's trailers over there. So maybe he's right. Right. I can't remember. Like there might be something else or maybe Desmond's starting to suspect something's up with that guy. Maybe that guy got him, you know, like mm-hmm. he's, he's leaning, leaning over to get the ring and maybe deputy deputy Howard came back. It's like, this guy's being a pain for me at work. And maybe now he's getting close to my drug running and maybe uh cliff Howard, the deputy deputy Howard off him. But again, and you have nothing to go on. This is just all speculation. And Let's Rock, of course, is uh, something spoken by a man from another place. So when Cooper shows up there and and uh, Chet Desmond is missing, and of course Diane says it in the return. But Let's Rock to me is synonymous with the the bad guy, the Lodge beings or whatever. Yeah, 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 totally. That's 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 all we got. We got nothing to go on. The only thing we I think know for sure is that the ring ended up back in the Black Lodge because then the arm has it when he tries to give it to Laura, which we know happened a year later. So whatever happened, some one way or another, the ring got back. Uh, so who knows? Yeah. Yeah, that's my... Maybe, sus- Chet, I, maybe I, Chet Desmond is in the lodge. Maybe that's uh, Twin Peaks Season 4. It's the uh, adventures of Chet Desmond that would be trying sick. to get out that of the Black pumped. Lodge. I wouldn't even be mad. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Supposedly, Chris Isaac is up for it so yeah. I, I think that they wrote i think yeah i think that they wrote the return and just decided to i mean they kept the ring and they kept philip jeffrey and they kept some stuff i just think the return was too big or i don't know they they didn't do they didn't bring back chet desmond or make it well yeah. they reference well, him i mean they re- yeah reference him of course but supposedly chris chris isaac said if lynch calls me i, I would come back to do it so that would yeah be for sure yeah, they just they couldn't bring back every single character from the Twin Peaks universe for this thing. You know what I mean? Like there's always there's always bound to be like a couple characters where you thought, oh well, you know, I would have loved to have seen what you know what would have happened with this character or that character, and Chet Desmond um, just kind of fell by the wayside in that regard. But yeah, and I just want to say one thing, you know, before we move on from this, is that. I want to stick up for uh, Chris Isaac a little bit, who gets a lot of shit for his acting in this. And I just want to say, I think he's actually good. I, I really like his performance here. I think he's really cool. I, d- I just I just want to throw that out there. Because like, I see again and again, even people who like this movie tend to uh, crap on his performance. Uh, but I actually really enjoy him here. Yeah, I wouldn't. I didn't even notice any... Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm not like the greatest eye for for acting but i don't know i thought i just think he's cool like i think it and coupled with the soundtrack yeah. like it, it just has this i don't know maybe if it is a bit um 
I don't know, cheesy if you want to say that, but like it just it works for me. Um, like the just the temperament that he's using. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I got, that's exactly how I feel. He, I think he's cool. If there's a line here or there that he doesn't nail, I really don't care. Like he, he's super cool, and I, I don't know. I, I don't. I hate to be part of the rumor mill or whatever, but I think that Lynch, like, I don't think they got along, or Lynch was having trouble with him at the time i don't know but uh i I heard some negative things about that but that all could just be rumor stuff but as of right now oh uh he's uh, chris isaac said that uh he'd be up for it if they did it and i love him so they should just just do it (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i think his casting it's important to remember the context because at the time in the early 90s chris isaac was seen as sort of like the epitome of cool you know whereas if the goal was to cast somebody who was sort of the anti-cooper then i think it was a good choice because cooper you know for all his strengths he's definitely not cool you know he's 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 really kind of a dork Mm -hmm. so i think it made (laughs) sense from that from that perspective um uh so yeah why don't we move on to a scene that I think at the time was probably the single most divisive and baffling scene in the entire film, possibly all of Twin Peaks. But now, because of the return, is arguably one of the most significant focal points of the entire Twin Peaks universe, which is the Philadelphia FBI office scene. This scene is just... First of all, we should mention that really this scene is two different scenes spliced together. It's mm-hmm. the Philip Jeffries scene, and it's also the convenience store scene. And I suspect that it was probably cut this way simply due to time constraints, because as we know, Lynch was contractually bound to a two hour and 15 minute runtime. So. It seems like he just really wanted to include both these scenes, and the only way he could really get it to work was to combine them in this really weird way that I think is I think is fine. I think it works, but man, I would love just an alternate universe where we got the full Philip Jeffrey scene and the full room above the convenience store scene because I think those two scenes separately are so much better when they're uh, allowed to breathe on their own rather than sort of spliced on top of each other. Yeah, they really are. Cause there's, there's so much happening individually, like in both of them that even, even though you can, you know, you can parse some of that stuff. If you watch the, the spliced scene over and over again. Um, and maybe, a, maybe that's, I don't know. And, um, something fun to work like worth doing trying to like see connections between them but to me there there's so much there's so much that gets left out too that i find really um really kind of like enticing but those two scenes especially um i don't know they're, they're so different but like the getting to see david bowie act um in that one scene just as philip jeffries is it's that's in my mind like a lot more than 
the the actual mm-hmm. theatrical cut. Like it, the, those two scenes are separated in my head canon kind of like inexorably because there's so there's so many things happening in both of them. Same. Like I when I think about the scene, I often forget that in the in the actual cut of the movie, he doesn't actually say or at least it's not audible all this stuff about like um I went to one of their meetings. It was above a convenience store. We live inside a dream, all this stuff. Like I yeah. think you can sort of faintly hear that, but it just lands so much better when when it's allowed to exist on its own, when it's not sort of spliced together with all this like jazz music and static and Bob's laughter and all this sort of stuff. Like I said, I I like the scene, the way that it's cut together as, you know, as presently constructed, but I think that the missing per- the missing pieces version of this scene is is really really fantastic and I love just about every little morsel of dialogue that David Bowie has in it. Yeah, me too. One of my favorite scenes ever. I was uh definitely a Bowie fan back when I first saw this and it's just like well, I mean, I loved him so as a kid, Labyrinth and some of that pop stuff, but like, uh, it was I, you can't uh, so when I watch Firewalk Me, when I watch this movie on its own by itself, like, I've just accepted that it's this way because it's that's all I had and uh, but yeah, that's, that's, this is the best example of how the missing pieces, like if you really want to get into the weeds about maybe what is possibly going on with the return and how all all this stuff connects, even though there's discrepancies everywhere. Like, yeah, exactly. You can't, I mean, I saw this a bunch when I was a kid. Right. And the, I don't even think I even caught the, we live inside a dream because there's, there's static and noise and music and everything Dylan just said is hundred percent true. hundred percent true. You have to, if there's only one missing piece piece that you watch, it has to be this, it has to be the whole Bowie Philadelphia community store all of that in its full full form is it's like required viewing as far as i'm concerned oh yeah i just i love i love all this stuff so much him just laying his head on the desk and saying ring ring repeatedly um yeah and of course you know with the return and everything i love him putting his hand on Albert's chest and looking him in the eyes and just saying very emphatically, we live inside a dream. Like, yeah. I just love the, I just like, now that we have the sheriff station scene with the superimposed face and everything like that, it just like gives me goosebumps. I love it. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. So, um, yeah, this is I almost don't even know where to start with this because pretty much everything that happens in this scene like now has just so much significance. I mean, first of all, even at the time of its release, or I should say before the return, there was some notion that Philip Jeffries pointing to Cooper and saying, "Who do you think this is there?" was making some possible reference to the fact that Cooper in the future is going to have a doppelganger. Um, but now it's like, it's very explicit in my opinion that that's what he's talking about because we get this depiction of Jeffries in the return that 
he's sort of lost in time. He's sort of mis- misplaced from the physical realm, and he's often very confused, seemingly, about who he's talking to. Is he talking to Cooper? Is he Mr. C? You know, he says, you know, you are Cooper. And he doesn't really seem to know entirely what's going on. And so now that we've gotten that depiction of Jeffries, I feel like what we see of him in this Philadelphia office scene, the way that he behaves, his reaction to Cooper, all of that just sort of locks into place for me in a very real way. Yeah, the two Coopers thing um, it stands out to me a ton. And it's something that, having not watched Fire Walk with me for, for like about a year or so, it was a little fuzzy exactly how it goes down. Because um, I was always like, wait, does he see himself in the security footage? Because it's, it's just odd that that happens. And um, like Cooper doesn't mention that. Uh, like when him and Gordon right. will go and look at the security footage. He doesn't mention. Because at first he's saying... It's ten ten on February whatever nineteen eighty nine. Um, I was worried about today because of the dream that I had last night, and then it immediately goes to him doing this whole security footage um, thing where he's trying to see if he can see himself on camera, and then he finally does the second that Philip Jeffries shows up. So like it it gets overshadowed by the coming of Philip Jeffries, and rightfully so because because obviously that can will take precedent but in the fact that they go back to that same footage and never talk about it is just super strange to me and um i think this is sort of where we're in uh like in the weeds of the unofficial version versus um whatever other versions there may be and that there's oh, this God. perhaps this dream uh that cooper is talking about is um you know like a foreshadowing of of the fact that there are going to be two of him or that there presently is in another timeline or however you want to think of it. But this timelessness in this, um, like to me, Philip Jeffries saying 1989 is analogous to agent Cooper asking what year is this? It's that same sort of, like you said, that they're completely out of, out of the physical realm outside of, um, our understanding of of time. So um, that this scene is just so rich with um, you know the it's it's just got all the things that kind of fuel the mythology of the show. Um, and it to the like it, it's almost one of those things like you can watch it and you understand what it's kind of saying, but there's not a real way to put it in words with a neat little bow um it's just cooper knows somewhat that his fate is has something to do with this duality of self and um that could be it or there could be more to it but um yeah or even if he doesn't know it's like it's at least foreshadowed cinematically with what happens here right just impressive that it was foreshadowing something that wouldn't happen for 25 years if ever (laughs) at all (laughs) right right yeah. Yeah. I th- I think a lot of this, I mean, that's pretty much, I don't know how much I got to add to that, but, but yeah, I agree hundred percent. I, the only thing is I think that, uh, it's, uh, you know, they didn't have a lot out of this stuff. Of course, Cooper was trapped in the lodge at the season two cliffhanger. So the idea of a doppelganger being out there certainly was out there. I, I, 
think that they see, I don't know if you guys know, but like Judy was, I guess, according to Robert Ingalls was supposed to be Josie's cousin and right. Philip Jeff. Yeah. yeah. And Philip Jeffries was investigating blah, blah, blah. So like what's cool about the scene is everything you just said is like, they set up so much stuff and it came from a bunch of different places and it ended up so much bigger and complicated in the return. I mean, you can just go on for ever about like there's uh, electrical sock there's electrical sockets in the wall and like I don't know if you're in the return in the FBI office with Dougie Jones is sitting in there and he hears the American music and there's a woman walks by so there's red shoes right, and wood right. paneling and, a, and an electrical socket and the American flag in that scene just like this FBI so Jeffrey's got red shoes mm-hmm, again, the mm-hmm. kind of Wizard of Oz Wizard of Oz thing you know but but yeah, I always took him as a phantom guy that may or may not, you know, obviously may or may not be there. And now with all the context of their turn, I, I, mean, I, I don't know how much I believe this, but like, it just seems that like Jeffries is the old, the old Cooper, like Cooper is a new Jeffries, like a guy that has crossed over into the other side. And now, yeah, exactly. Like 1989 is just like, well, what year is this? I mean, it's just, Coop, I think, you know, Cooper, if he survives whatever happens in the return, then like he's basically Jeffries now. Like he's trapped or yeah, he, yep, he yep. exists on that other plane, right? And he, he's maybe never going to know. Just like Jeffries, like, uh, remember he's talking to in the return, like, you know, uh, you know, he's like, who am I talking to? Or, did you say that? Or did someone else say that? Like, there's little things in there that he's like, doesn't know really where he he probably doesn't know what year it is that in the return either because he's been right, right his brain's been brain's been fried a bunch for all this time jumping and whatever again the electricity thing mm-hmm. electricity thing and the missing pieces it's more obvious the lights start to fade and flicker out and you hear that throbbing electronic sound and anyway yeah you, you could go on for hours about just this little two minute scene Sure, yeah, and you're right. Judy was originally something completely different that was ultimately cut from the script and that they never really shot, to my knowledge, which you know was that Judy was originally going to be Josie's sister, I think maybe even her twin sister. Or Jeffrey, Jeff, sure. yeah, Jeffrey's Laura, basically, I think. Yeah. Like, I was in mm-hmm. Seattle with Judy's, and I, you know, and I was trying to figure this thing out about this girl, and now everything's messed up. Like it's kind of like Brian <laughs> Cooper's story too, yeah. sort of. Yeah, it is. It is. So yeah, it's it's obviously a major retcon considering that Judy went from potentially Josie's sister to being the like, being sort of like the ultimate evil slash driving force potentially of everything that Cooper does towards the end of the return. That's all sort of ambiguous, but. I I think it's kind of beautiful that they were able to do that. Like, to me, like, I know that some people look at that, that act of sort of reappropriating Judy and, you know, sort of giving it a new mythology. They sort of roll their eyes at that. But to me, like, that's just, that's like one of Lynch's great strengths is to like be able to just sort of, take a small thing and uh, feel it out and go with the flow and be able to turn it into something that 
you know, even though he never intended for it to be that, he he just had a there was like some there was a driving artistic force within him that that really um felt that it was the way to go. Do you know what I mean? Like I just to me that's something yeah. that I enjoy about Lynch. It's not like that's like just the to me that's just like a wonderful feature of his work rather than like a a flaw in it, you know. It's I, I look at it as sort of a feature, not a bug type of thing personally yeah and i i agree that it's definitely something he does well over and over again and it's really i don't know when exactly you know in the process of making the film that that was decided like like the sort of what judy is or or rather what judy isn't but i i wonder if it has to do with just david bowie's delivery of that line because now i mean now it's sort of passed into like it's a legendary line in Twin Peaks canon, uh, if not the most, um, one of the most memorable lines. Um, and it obviously has taken on a life of its own, just that sort of one that, that like, there's so many questions. Like, this is Philip Jeffries, uh, which we've heard. He Was he referenced in the original run? I don't think he was. Not no. at all, right? So th- no. here's this whole new character we know nothing about. It's david bowie which i'm sure was amazing for everyone watching at the time but then he just utters this line of like it's seemingly nonsense we're not going to talk about judy uh which burns the question in the mind of like who's judy and then it just never gets touched on except for when the monkey says that says her name um but yeah i get is that ability maybe he just heard that line and it took on a completely new meaning to him that was um, you know, wholly could completely replace um this this other idea he had for who or whatever Judy was supposed to be. Um, but it's kind of like right. that amazing right. stroke of like letting yourself being open to possibilities, like never closing the book and just sort of letting your creations start to start to uh breed their own creations. It's really like um a, a sign of, of a real master of their craft when they can pull that off uh, over and over again. Yeah. Like I could easily imagine Lynch and Frost just going down to, you know, write the the script for the return and watching Firewalk with me and just saying like, Ooh, there's just something about the way that David Bowie delivers that line that makes it sound really ominous. You know, like we're not going to talk about Judy. We're not going to talk about Judy at all. And maybe there's something there. Like maybe there's an interesting idea that we can, used to spin off into something more and i just love that yeah um i just learned this uh recently but so he does this he does this all the time and just like dylan said i think like a lot of great artists do this and coincidentally david bowie used to do this too i'm like a crazy bowie fan like but he would do stuff like he would do things like songs reference other songs ashes to ash Ashes is a sequel to Space Oddity. Yeah. Kind of explain explaining what Space Oddity is all about. And then, you know, he's station to station was like, you know, 70s album with the red hair and he's got the this blue suit with these like white chalk stripes on it, right? And that was just like the, mm-hmm. the idea for the album cover. Well then like, you know, twenty years later, in you know, in the nineties, he's doing the outside album, which has kind of got a alien type feel to it. So he's he's got short, it doesn't look like it. It's not instantly noticeable but he's got short orange hair and then live on stage he had these like tattered clothes with these white or white chalks 
stripes on it. So it's kind of like a reinterpretation of like, he, you know, pull, pulling back themes and ideas and even costumes and looks and, and, uh, but if you're creative about it, it doesn't feel like you're, uh, grasping at your past or trying to recreate something. It's like, I'm going to take a little element of my past and I'm going to flip it and people might, it might resonate with people, you know? And, oh, so speaking of that, like, uh, suppose, Supposedly Robert Ingalls said, uh, so Fire Walk With Me was going to open with a nuclear bomb explosion and some bugs being turned into these lodge beings. And so we didn't get, yeah, so we didn't get that. I got to verify that. I heard that from uh, Cameron from Obnoxious Anonymous and I were talking about it. And uh, so I got to, I haven't read the actual interview, but long story short, there was going to be a, so so you can say that was an idea that was scrapped. And then when revisiting the returns, like, okay, I'm going to do it again. But obviously it changed and it, it fits more with Mark Frost's secret history and the, the, the UFOs and the Roswell, New Mexico and the bomb testing and all that stuff. And so they expanded the idea. And so the bugs are like frog moths now or whatever, you know, so you arguably, arguably, but the whole point is that uh, basically anything left on the, on the cutting room floor of, of the show or the movies or Lynch and Frost, like they pulled from everything, even stuff that was like, Oh, like Freddie, the green glove with Freddie. Supposedly Lynch has had this in his mind since the nineties of Jack Nance having a green glove that had some kind of power or something. So even I, even unused ideas or half evolved ideas, they pulled from all that stuff to do the return. So, uh, the, scene yeah classic example the scene's perfect in that in regards to that yeah well i'm like looking online right now to try to find some reference to uh robert ingles mentioning the atomic bomb i haven't found anything but uh yeah i don't see anything but if that's true that's that's fascinating yeah I, so um, i know the judy stuff is true i've actually read yeah i've, I've read that as well yeah, yeah but i gotta uh i I got to dig into the uh, find out exactly where that is, but um, supposedly there's a mention of a formica table even, and that's where the 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 arm saying this is a formica table, green is its color, like so. Apparently there's right. So who knows? But the the Freddy thing and the glove thing, that's like for sure. Uh, a lot of the stuff in this Philadelphia office sequence is the same. Like take take Judy, kind of an unused, unfinished idea, and and when they do the return, we're going to blow it up and make it something. Right. Yeah, so <clears throat> I guess, I don't know if you've read this too, and speaking of things where we can't remember where we source them, but I, I seem to remember there being um, some news that broke, I think relatively recently, that Lynch had originally planned to make several films in the Twin Peaks universe. Is that correct? Now that I don't know. But it just but it just did but it just didn't happen because of Firewalk with me. That's a I I don't I haven't heard that for sure. I think that uh maybe that's a I think Robert Ingalls some stuff I've read of him said that again you had these ideas like Judy and things that they 
didn't have time to fit in and didn't have time to use. But the idea was that that, you know, if they did another one, then they could start expanding on that stuff, stuff too. But I but I've never heard anything of. I never heard David Lynch say, oh, yeah, I was going to make three Twin Peaks. I was going to make a Twin Peaks trilogy mm-hmm. and but Firewalk, Firewalk with me. Wasn't yeah, I'm looking. Um, I'm looking right now. There's an article on Mental Floss where it says. Lynch apparently planned a trilogy of Twin Peaks films, but the idea was abandoned after the poor reception to Firewalk with me. And like, I don't, I don't know, like maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but it just makes me wonder, like ever since I read that, I've always had this question in my mind of like, were there things that ultimately ended up in the return that he had conceived of at the time. And maybe that's why there are so many connections to Firewalk with me and why so many of these things felt like red herrings um, and dead ends at the time. Like maybe he had originally thought that he was going to get to make more films. I I just think it's interesting to think about. Yeah, that's awesome. I I hadn't heard that. And I totally just threw that trilogy thing out of nowhere. Like I didn't know... (laughs) If that's true, that's amazing. He was going to do three of them, and it, it kind of makes sense, especially if uh, you know. You know, I can see him like, okay, we're going to go back, do back, and do the do the first one, and we'll we'll recap Laura, and we'll do this, and we'll introduce a bunch of stuff with Bowie and and all that stuff, and then maybe do a. Yeah, that's 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 pretty awesome. But yeah, I I think it's safe yeah, to I'm, say I'm seeing I'm seeing another reference to it also on um, denofgeek.com. So I don't know. Okay, that's Maybe. that's that's super cool. I never heard that before. I think that, uh, but I think it's safe to assume that that anything that was thought of by Lynch and Ingalls and Frost and I think everything was up for grabs, and I think most of that stuff got worked into the return one way or the other. So again, they ditched Judy being Josie's sister, but the concept of Judy and and Philip Jeffries has either seen her or knows something about her. Like, you know, they definitely just, okay, here's all the ideas we had that we never got to use. And then they remix them to work with the new story, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the Philadelphia FBI office scene, <laughs> pretty, pretty yeah, heavy sorry. scene in terms of, th- <laughs> of terms of things to talk about. Like we could probably just do an entire episode about that one scene, but we should probably move on. Um, yeah, probably for t- for time's sake. Um, so yeah, I guess the last little bit of this is that Cooper goes to the Fat Trout Trailer Park, and um, he goes to the vacant trailer site, and um, something I'm so I'm a little embarrassed, but I. I couldn't quite mix it. Was is the trailer site that he goes to was was that where Teresa's trailer used to be? Uh, no, it, no, it was that. So the, did he? That's did he just? Did he just? Gotcha. So he just saw. So he just. So sorry, I'm having a little trouble. He sees like the vacant lot, and he's like, "What used to be right?" Here? Right, but did he? Him. Did he like? Did he have some information about what that vacant lot was before he go before he checked it out, or was he just no, like, "Hey, what's up with this vacant lot?" He originally he um he's walking in Carl Rod's like Teresa's Banks' trailer is that way, and he's like, "I'm not going over there." And he's like, "Where are you going?" And he says, "I'm going over here." So that, I think there was just something 
that drew him to it. Um, like some of that, like Cooper intuition, mm-hmm. but I don't think that he, I don't think he even went there with the intention to go there. I think assuming from what Carl Rod said, he went there to investigate the Teresa Banks trailer, but I don't really know. I th- I think, okay. I think that he, I think the scene breaks down like this. It's basically a mirror image of the Chet Desmond scene. Cause Chet Desmond shows up with Carl Rod and he says, deputy clips trailers down down there and Teresa Banks trailers down there. And then, you know, Carl walks away and then, then Chris Isaac turns around and doesn't go in either of those directions. He goes in this other directions, like what's up with this trailer. Right, so he's right. kind of called to this trailer too. Right. So then the Cooper thing later is basically the same thing. And Carl was saying, and he, this, they mentioned deputy cliff again. He's like, I told everybody Desmond showed up. I said, cliff deputy clips trailers down down there and Teresa Banks trailers down there. And then Cooper, yeah, he starts just walking in this other direction and he's like, where the hell are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going over here. So Cooper ignores the deputy and Teresa Banks trailer and goes to the same spot that Desmond did. And then my favorite line in the movie, he says, thanks, Carl. Sorry to wake you. <laughs> Meaning he did what he did, what those other guys did. Remember the sign on the door? Don't knock before yeah. 9 a.m. ever, ever. It's yeah freaking hilarious so they wake they wake Colorado up early and then the sorry to wake you as a reference like oh cooper must have shown up and woke him up early too so he's probably all <laughs> salty you know but cooper apologizes and uh yeah there's yeah there's about there's about 15 seconds of levity in the in this whole movie and that's <laughs> that's uh that's a little yeah. bit of it right there yeah absolutely um so yeah, Cooper, he goes over to this vacant trailer site and Carl tells him that it used to be owned by two Chalfonts. Which, of course, now it's impossible to hear that without imagining, without thinking about part 18 in which Cooper, you know, visits a place where he's expecting something to be there that isn't there and finds out that it used to be owned by two different Chalfonts. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I don't really, you know, I, I don't have like some grand theory about that. I just find that symmetry kind of inescapable and interesting. Yeah. I think it's what we've been talking about this whole time. Just this, uh, like sort of uncanny ability to give you pause for a moment when you see a scene like have is this familiar like almost like deja vu like um mm-hmm. like the like and, and it's almost like you feel like you're sharing that experience with the character uh, as well it's 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 a pretty amazing but like when i heard that not like yeah two chow fonts pretty weird or whatever he says i got like chills because yeah it is pretty mm-hmm. weird and it continues to be pretty weird for quite a while <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, Chet's car has "Let's Rock" written on it. it looks like in lipstick or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we get like we get like the the iconic interior view of the co- where we see it like from from inside the windshield. Um. Yeah. Did you have something you wanted to say about that, uh, Jeremiah? Oh, just uh, yeah. So kind of. If we're tying everything to the return, uh, this interior shot looking out at Cooper with the Let's Rock lipstick, and I want to say the sound is kind of muffled. 
shuffled a little bit. I don't know. I can't remember if Harry Dean's talking or not, but uh, this is reminiscent of of Diane, who also yeah. says, "Let's let's rock in the return." And there's a shot after the uh, homeboy gets his skull crushed, right, in uh, yep. in the car, yeah. and then it's muffled. They said. We need to call backup, and she's kind of peering in the windshield. She says something like, "There's no backup for this." You know, exactly it sounds right. it sounds kind of muffled, and it's coming through kind of a, a windshield look. But anyway, I was that the these those two scenes kind of tie together, and it's just uh, you know, this is like a primer for what Cooper's about to more or less. Since this is a prequel, this seem this is kind of the okay, Cooper. This is kind of what you're. The idea that maybe he already right. he he's already getting into a, some supernatural or some weird stuff before he even gets to mm-hmm. Peaks, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's the same words that he's going to hear from the arm in his oh yeah, his dream, of course. Quote, yeah, that too. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so the last little bit from uh, this whole Teresa Banks thing is that we get just a. A small scene of Cooper speaking to Diane in his tape recorder about uh, just sort of generally about Teresa Banks and about Chet Desmond disappearing and he's standing by the river where Teresa Banks' body was found. And then we do a very jarring cut to Twin Peaks where we get the one year later title card we get uh, Falling by Julie Cruz playing. And it's like, boom, all of a sudden we're in fucking Twin Peaks. <laughs> and yep. we see Laura, Donna, Mike, Bobby, and James all within a span of like 45 seconds. It's just like mm-hmm. all at once like, okay, okay, no, like for real, guys, like we're in Twin Peaks. Like I know you guys are probably really confused, but we're here now. We're there. We're, we're, we're in Twin Peaks. Um, but almost immediately we get this scene of Laura doing coke in the high school bathroom and that's really the first side that it's like oh this is going to be a different depiction of Twin Peaks isn't it like we're probably going to be exploring some slightly darker corners of this town than we're used to yeah, it reminds me that the cut almost reminds me of like the cold cut to Audrey after whatever 14, 13, 14 episodes. Uh, just sort of like, boom, okay, here it is. We're here now. You got it. And then uh, give it a couple minutes. It's not what you think it is. <laughs> it, it has a little bit of that um, homecoming feel that is immediately like, oh, yeah, she's. That, that's right. This is around the time that her life was completely spiraling into um, chaos and disarray. And she's doing bumps in the, in the stall at eight o'clock in the morning just to act normal. Um, But yeah, it's truly from here on out like the, this, the, all the kind of like, I mean, there's, there's a lot of still like great mysterious moments, but from, for at least for me from here, it becomes a completely emotional, um, ride one that is that takes you to a lot of really dark places and that little just that little bit of her uh her dark side just a little bit just a little bump that she does it's just like oh this like the tip of the tip of the iceberg um so yeah every time Mm -hmm. i see that it's just like oh 
Here we go. Yep. Yep, it's just throwing us in right off the bat, just preparing us for the fact that we're in for some dark shit. And it's not <laughs> going to be the same. Um, and on that note, we get Bobby kissing the glass with the prom photo in it, which I believe is the alternate prom photo, is it not? Yeah. Like, it's not the same one that was used in the show? Mm-hmm. They're, they're basically kind of flipped. So the the prom shot from the original show is at, at her home. In in the Palmer house, and okay. it was vice versa, vice versa in the show. So it's just like gotcha, a little gotcha. slight, slight I head see. tilt, I see. right? Gotcha. Yeah, it's just it's just a little bit different. But if you're like us and you've looked at that prom photo like a million zillion times, you're you're able to notice that it's just a little bit different. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So uh, we get this brief scene here of Laura talking to James and (laughs) this is like, um, I don't know, maybe the the one instance that I would consider to be uh, of questionable quality in terms of the writing here. We get this pretty infamous turkey scene going on here where Laura says gobble gobble. (laughs) which I think is funny because it's not the only like infamous gobble gobble throughout cinema history. There's also uh, in the movie Geely with uh, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez where she's like trying to seduce him. And uh, she also says something. She's like, it's turkey time. Gobble gobble. And that's like probably the most infamous scene of that movie. I just, I don't know. It's just weird to me that we have two separate instances of like, gobble goggle gobble gobble being like sort of uh sort of mock worthy in 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 cinema history i had forgotten Um, about the dialogue because i remember this scene just because it's so it's another one of those like oh wow this is this is laura palmer kind of scenes um yeah and and visually yeah and oh by the way she's she 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 we see her breasts as well which is also shocking yeah right exactly and it's like so I remembered it being kind of like a, a heavy scene, and then I'm watching it again earlier today, and I'm like, oh my god, that's right. This whole thing's about turkeys. He's like, you're not a turkey. <laughs> turkey's one of the dumbest birds out there. <laughs> it's like if, if any, like if anything is like, um, gonna maybe harken back to like Twin Peaks as a faux soap opera. It's like you get this one little piece of melodrama here, this little turkey turkey makeout session whatever you want to call it yeah yeah i think uh so i don't know if you remember where the missing pieces uh, uh it's not the same thing but in my mind it's similar he's she's uh talking to donna and and doc hayward and this is uh, missing pieces and she says you know like oh donna you're just you're a muffin or she calls they start they call each other muffins and then yeah. she walks away and she's all sad and then she says no donna i'm the muffin and it's kind of like like i know i don't know what they're what that means or whatever i think that the turkey and the muffin and there's some other there's some other little things i don't know if it's in the original show but i think it's just maybe lynch and them like it has a very like 50s like innocent joking vibe i don't know i think it's just kind of like a reminding us all that they're still kids right like yeah they're, right, they're right. saying they're saying silly things and they're making up 
little words like oh you're you're a turkey and you're a muffin and i don't know i just i always sure i throw it yeah just in that just dumb little I inside that, jokes like, i mean i yeah yeah and it's just uh yeah but it's definitely silly on screen like mm. very out of especially like well this is supposed to be super dark but they're you know still kind of talking like little goofballs and stuff <laughs> But even though we're yeah. back in Twin Peaks, we've already we've already been prime the first you know first act of the movie. That's one thing I can say. You know, there, I think there's there's some flaws in this movie, especially not having a lot of that missing piece of stuff in there. But I'm I'm super glad that the first act basically is the Chad Desmond, Philip Jeffries, Cooper, FBI, Blue Rose stuff, and then the second act, like or when when we get to Laura, we jump right into like okay, she's got a drug problem. Okay, she's got a boyfriend. And she's seeing somebody else, and okay, like uh, they don't. He doesn't spend the first act trying to establish Laura as as innocent, and like there isn't a whole lot of like. I don't know if this movie was made today. I, I think that or movies like this, you know, the first act is is always like this is the girl, and she's look, she has friends, and she's sweet, and she's nice, and like she's sweet, and she's then the second act, like oh, you know, then things get dark and whatever. I'm just glad that they just like jumped right into it. And um, although the best scene, one of my favorite scenes in the missing pieces is the the family dinner scene where they're actually smiling and laughing and <laughs> having, oh, having yeah. a good time. Yeah, I love because that. I think I think that scene would set up to be more like if there was more time at the beginning to show like, hey, this is a nice girl with a nice, seemingly nice family, but because they had the time constraint, they just jump right into her being like not in a good situation which i think helps, helps yeah the film, honestly yeah absolutely yeah like in a normal movie there would be this whole setup of like oh she was just a nice suburban girl until she fell in with the wrong crowd but in yeah, here we're right. just sort of skipping all that and getting right to the meat of it but yeah i would have loved to have seen the the dinner table scene that you referenced in there i think that generally one thing that would have benefited this movie is just a little bit of levity, you know, like obviously the heart of the movie is very dark and the movie is great as is, but I would have loved to have seen just a little bit more of the Palmer family dynamic that isn't all just pain and abuse and crying just <laughs> yeah. to just to sort of provide a little bit of contrast. Like I love the dinner scene and I also love the the scene where Sarah is telling you know telling laura not to smoke you know like if uh if you don't you know if you don't start you never have to quit or whatever just being very being a sort of typical mom towards laura and we just we never really see that throughout the entirety of twin peaks and i would have really appreciated some of that stuff being in the final cut because i think that if we had that to contrast it with all the really really dark stuff it would have maybe hit just a little bit harder you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like, too, there's... Since you get... There's so much in so many consecutive scenes where Laura is just tortured that it, it almost... It's almost, like, fatiguing um, just emotionally mm-hmm. to, to, to put yourself in, uh, like, this is your protagonist. So you're kind of taking on what she's taking on and then scene after scene of just like you said, crying and desperation. But I think it does, even though it's a bummer and it maybe would have been nice to have some of the levity in some of the, um, 
the other side of that, which I agree it would have been, but I think that it, it, if its job is to kind of really depict um, as best it can what Lara is going through, it that relentlessness is part of I think her pain and that like there is no there is no safety like there is no there is nowhere to run there is no uh, there is no levity there is no brightness not because that that's a huge theme for Lara throughout this film is her own concept of hope and um when she loses that like what really happens and how that how that affects her so um but i i mm-hmm. that dinner table scene is uh it's hilarious but i i watched it um after watching the movie and it's like you're just so used to seeing leland in his like demented horrific form that it almost had like a backwards effect where I was like, Oh, this is wrong. <laughs> like they're all so happy and nice together. Like it almost, it almost like remo- sucked out any of the goodness from it. Hmm. Yeah. I mean that relentlessness that you describe is definitely uh, in keeping with the, th- with the themes of the movie. Uh, but I just think like as an audience, it would have been nice to have had a breather every now and then, because I do Hell feel yeah, like bro. by the, by the end, it's just so, so punishing. It's just one scene after another of Cheryl Lee just sobbing and crying and being manic that I would have appreciated just like, just the just a tiny bit of respite in there somewhere. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, so we go from all the gobble gobble stuff to uh, this scene outside the high school with Laura and Bobby where Bobby is uh, behaving very aggressively towards her. He's sort of jealous. He, I don't know. It's just like high school melodrama bullshit. And I love the way that she just effortlessly uses her charm and her smile to make him just be like, I love you, babe. Like, she just manipulates him so well that it just makes it clear that Laura is operating on a completely different emotional plane than the people around her. You know, like, she's just a much more, uh, she just has, like, a much more complex psyche than Bobby. Like, he's just kind of like a dumb puppy dog, and she can just manipulate him at will, basically, without even so much as trying. I, I love this scene. There is a darkness to it because of what you're saying, because of like how she has that ability to, to be know, almost removed from the situation emotionally so that she can manipulate others. Um, but Bobby's fucking backwards walk kills me every time. And there is no <laughs> gift for it on Twitter that I can find. So I need to just make one and find out how to make gifts. It's just, it just, right. oh, it's so funny. Like, not only does she like pacify his anger, she like puts him on the moon. He's just like, oh, yeah, I love you, babe. And just backwards walks like a boss on out of there. It's just, oh, I love it. It's so funny. Yeah. 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 It's a great. It's a great scene. Totally true. All you said, uh, she's, and that fits into the original series too. Like, you know, Bobby tells Dr. Jacoby that like, you know, he, she really had her, his hooks in him and like Bobby's not a spring chicken and he's not innocent and he's doing drugs and dealing drugs too. And so he's not, you know, he's not innocent here, but it totally, 
shows that Menor and James references everybody references that though Laura had a way about her. Laura had a, a thing she could get anybody to do anything for her or whatever. And you know, since this is the only time we see Laura Palmer alive, I think this whole sequence is specifically for that to like show you like yeah she's the, the victim and going through her own stuff but she still has power over other people which is arguably what bob is pursuing right and then the other, the other thing real yeah. quick i um never noticed this before i mean I, uh that the opening of that sequence is, is a shot of like the student just random students walking and you see before Bobby runs up to Laura, there's a random woman or girl like running through the shot. So it's a sea of legs, right? It's just like waist down girl, boy, girls and high school kids standing there. And a, a girl runs through the runs through the shot. And it's kind of reminiscent of the is having a random person running through the high school grounds always struck me as a, a connecting to the pilot with the, the screaming girl when Donna hears that when she realizes that Laura dies, this is a screaming girl running right. through the, through the thing. It's basically the same kind of courtyard or I don't know. Anyway, that, that shot always, why is that a shot there? Why didn't it just start with Bobby running up to Laura? But it's like, you know, it's a few seconds of, of these high school kids just standing there and a girl runs through the frame. I just thought that was interesting. I don't know. Right, yeah, I never picked up on that, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, yeah, and then it's, it's that shot that basically opens the return as well. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, and it's, it's like it's the, like all slow motion and everything. And the fireman puts it in Andy's vision, so it's it's important. Yeah, for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, um, just the last thing about this scene is that this song, this really silly song, <laughs> is playing over it called "A Real Indication." Uh, which actually just resurfaced on the recent on the recently released Thought Gang album, uh, which is a musical collaboration between uh, David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti, uh, and it has a few of these like old, weird, like prog jazz spoken word pieces on it. Um, and this is this is one of those songs, and we're actually going to hear it again a second time later when laura is like on her bed i think she's like about to go into her diary when she notices all the pages are missing she's like sort of rocking her head back and forth uh and it's this song is playing again over that scene i do believe um Mm -hmm. so yeah we uh we go from there and we get uh, a scene i love between laura and donna we should probably mention that Donna in this film is, of course, played by Moira Kelly uh, rather than Laura Flynn Boyle for reasons probably having to do with Laura Flynn Boyle being a huge star at this point and probably feeling really jilted by the way that Twin Peaks ended, as a lot of people were, including Kyle McLaughlin. Um, that's probably the reason that she didn't agree to come back, is my guess. Uh, but nevertheless, I really enjoy Moira Kelly as Donna, I gotta say. In fact, it may be a controversial opinion, but I think I kind of prefer Moira Kelly's uh, depiction of Donna. Uh, and I really enjoy the way that she she brings sort of a wide-eyed 
quality to these scenes where uh that i think is really important when you when you're seeing her react to uh all of the all of the scuzzy stuff that uh laura gets into as opposed to um laura flynn boyle's portrayal of donna which was a lot more stoic um yeah anyways i just i really appreciate maura kelly's performance in this i just wanted to say that i agree i think she has more of a um like like Donna in Firewalk with me has a, a a very misguided um sort of energy about her where she she looks up to Laura and like kind of doesn't really know what she's getting herself into with a lot of this stuff um in a way that you know the character of Donna in the original run um although I enjoy Laura from Boyle's portrayal of her and like I I like oh, all yeah, that yeah, stuff absolutely yeah but it, it doesn't have that same um dynamic where you would you buy the fact that this um not only are they best friends but but Donna really idolizes um Laura and and sort of looks at this this like Laura is keeping her at an arm's length as like a, just she's misguided she thinks that it's just Laura trying to be cooler than her or or have more experience or keep her out of the experience so she wants to be involved in it um and ends up getting way more than um, you know, getting involved in way deeper than she was probably expecting that night. But yeah, um, I really, I really, I was thrown off at first. I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, who's this person? Like when I first watching it, I was like, who's this person? This is, and then she keeps calling her Donna. I was like, wait, and I had to like pause and do a quick search. Like, Oh no shit. That is Donna. But I, I really like her performance too. Yeah. I don't think it's, I think you'll find you're not, alone and uh or nick i mean uh, i don't think that's a controversial opinion in my experience with twin peaks fans i think that lots and lots and lots of people really like Mara carol a lot of people this movie really lands with and a lot of people like prefer her performance better or you know i mean she's a she's a great actress and uh i think she nailed it and i, th- I think it works too like um the uh, this, like you said, this Donna is more innocent. Like, I don't think this Donna is Laura's best friend, but doesn't see really what's going on with Laura. And then of course, in, uh, Laura Flynn Boyle in the original series is, is to like, Hey, I knew Laura better than anyone. Like she was, you know, going through some stuff and, but this movie's great too. So yeah, it's like a different Donna's more mature now because her best friend's dead and she got a glimpse of what what was really going on with her so uh, you know it's kind of even though they're different actresses like it's kind of seamless to me when i when i watch them because they just feel donna laura flynn's boils more mature it seems or at least trying to be not not as not as innocent and this is also about donna kind of the fire walk me is about donna losing her innocence a little bit too but then it also plays into uh the scene with them on the couches is great because she's you know mm-hmm. you know what would happen what would happen if you fell down the hole or whatever and she's like I'd fall faster and faster and burst in the flames and uh, she um they Laura is sharing like her deepest darkest feelings with Donna right there at that moment but it's a it's a it's just a small sliver of it and Donna thinks like well that was kind of weird yeah. kind of weird that she would say that mm-hmm. and so another thing I think this movie resonates a lot with people like as far as like victims of abuse and stuff like you, you, you're, at least to me I was always kind of like 
well, why if Donna's really her best friend and like, why doesn't like I tell my best friend everything? Like, why wouldn't Donna like Laura break it all down? And, and you know, the, the secret diary, but then in the, this movie too, at least gives you a glimpse of like, she's also protecting the people, Donna and James, she's not telling them everything because she wants to protect them too. Yes. Like, Right, she, either exactly. does, yes, she, does, exactly. she doesn't want them to feel less of her. She also doesn't want them to get involved with Bob and drugs and 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 all the crazy stuff that they're in. And I think that that resonates with people. I think people in the, uh, a lot of people that are going through traumas and or what, health problems or abuse or whatever it is, a lot of people don't share it with the people they should because they want to. They don't. I want to hurt their friends too, right? Like they, right. So, anyway, my thoughts thoughts mm-hmm. on Donna. Yeah, and this whole scene right here, where Donna poses this hypothetical to her, where you know, do you think if you were floating in space that you would slow down or go faster and faster? Um, this is sort of Laura's, uh, like covert indirect way of signaling that her life is going out of control you know when she says that you know you go faster and faster and then you'd burst into fire and the angels wouldn't help you because they've all gone away and you know we're a lot of this movie is pretty heavy on angel imagery as well which we'll get to but yeah this is just like uh a, a bit of foreshadowing probably of what's to come um big time yeah and uh yeah, and then we get some also uh, some more revisionist history as it applies to James, where uh, Donna says that James is just like James is gorgeous, and he's so sweet, and it just it just makes me laugh when people talk about James like in these James Dean esque terms, you know, uh, like he's just like the hottest, most mysterious man on the planet. Uh, Good. He's pretty cool. Good stuff. Though. Oh yeah, he's he always, always cool. was. Yes, yes. Um. So, anyways, Laura goes through her secret diary. She gets it out from behind her dresser, and she notices that some pages are missing. And she finds this horrifying. She immediately runs to Harold Smith, uh, and gives him the secret diary. And tells him that Bob took the pages and he's sort of like telling her, oh, Bob isn't real, etc. And Laura says to him, Bob says he wants to be me or he'll kill me. Which is interesting. Why do we think Bob wants to be Laura? Well... I think it's just to keep himself like out of this um, deal that he's seemingly made with um, like above the convenience store, whatever this, this deal is that they have where he is possessing Leland and harvesting all this Garmin Bozia. Um, he obviously doesn't want Laura to die because then, then he has to do his like whole payout that we end up seeing so I assume that he is trying to inhabit Lara so he can actually continue this this like gambit and then bring all sorts of more pain and suffering. But he's like when when they're in the missing pieces when they show the full above the convenience store, 
uh, scene, Bob screams like something like I'm I'm paraphrasing, like I'm being carried by the strength of my own momentum, sort of like he doesn't want, he wants to be like autonomous and independent and still, you know, is doing that in the return. Um, Just he's using Cooper's doppelganger as his vehicle rather than uh, Laura Palmer. But I think to him, it's just whoever, whoever he could hop onto to like continue this streak. Um, but that that's about, about what I got. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. This is something to do. Like I, I get the feeling that, yeah, I mean, that's, that basically sums it all up. They, uh, they want, well, so something I just noticed yesterday watching this again. So the, the grandson in the convenience store points and says, fell a victim. And I always thought that meant somebody has fallen a victim to something. Like, I always thought he was pointing to the arm and fell a victim meant that the arm, you remember Mike used to be bad and he turned good or something. I don't know. I never knew what that meant. And now I think it's a, a command. Like, yeah. fell a victim. Like, you kill some, you need to go kill somebody. And Bob, like you said, in the missing pieces, yeah, he says, uh, uh, I, ha- I have the fury of my own momentum. Basically, like, don't, te- don't tell me what to do. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm more powerful than the rest of y'all, which kind of fits in the return. Like, it seems like all the bad guys are these little eggs and things or whatever, and Bob is like this giant. But it seems that Bob's like the alpha of these creatures, right? Sort of. Yeah. Definitely. In a way. And they're like, hey, you got to go kill somebody. And he's like, I have the fear of my own momentum. And then the, the arm says, with this ring, I be wed. That's where I think that the ring is symbolic of, like, uh, basically whoever puts the ring on next is who you're going to kill kind of thing. Something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's like a union because it's like with this ring, I the wed. It's like <laughs> you are going to whoever wears this ring next. That's who you're tied to. Um, that's what the the terms of this deal is. Um, which I don't know why that's how I'm looking at it, but I think that's like there. It seems like there's there's they're striking some kind of a, an agreement or or whatever. And that statement about the ring, uh, that 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 the ring is like the symbol of of that deal and of course many other things throughout twin peaks yeah and then you have the uh at the end is um you know the mike in the arm saying bob i want i want all my garvin bozia like right I, I want what you owed me and then um uh, oh there's also sorry about why does bob want to be laura so i you, you get a like a you get a little you hear a little sliver of this but it's more obvious in the missing pieces when Laura's under the stairs and the fan is going and especially if you turn the subtitles on like he straight up says like I want to taste through your mouth I want Mm -hmm. to uh, you know like so he is I believe uh, because Laura is a, a sociopath and surrounded by people that she can manipulate and there's drugs and apparently people dying around her you know like uh she's got her fingers in every everyone in the town and to bob 
job that's just like an endless feast, right? Yeah. Like, uh, oh, and then uh, in the in the the pink room, scene, or the the road hot, or when Donna gets all drunk and they're dancing and the all of that stuff that's coming up here in a little bit. I think you hear Bob say, you know, think of what we could do with Donna. I I gotta verify that. But I'm almost positive. I'm almost positive that's in there somewhere. It might it might be in the I might be it might be in the diary book, the diary book. Right. But there, there's there's allusions. There's there's different there's different things that point me to the idea that he wants he wants Laura to be the vessel that he so he can get he can he can get sex and drugs and pain and sorrow all the time, whereas. Hmm. Leland's, you know, so he's Laura is more. But if you take in context with the return, maybe he wants Laura because he knows Laura's this good, good energy that he wants to, you know, overcome. Who knows? Whatever. Right. Right. But um, mm. the idea, the idea, and I, I didn't, I didn't sink into me for like years. Definitely not the first time. First few times I watched Firewalk with me when I was younger and the original series. Like the whole idea of Bob wanting to be her and the arrangement with the ring and all that stuff it completely went over my head and uh and it wasn't until you know later years or whatever that it's it's like oh okay because at the time i was younger and it was like serial killer movies and stuff like okay so he's a demon and just wants to kill her and all right but yeah now that there's so much much more potentially so much more going on especially with the ring and that kind of stuff hmm now I'm just thinking about what Bob would be like as a teenage girl. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, that would be insane. And, and in the train car at the end, Laura he puts a mirror in front of her, and Laura looks in the mirror, and she turns yes. turns into Bob. Right. Yes. So I yes. mean, it was kind of by that. like it was kind of like staring at me in the face for years, and then it just kind of at one point it all clicked, and I went, "Oh, okay, I got it." Hmm. Yeah, so we get another very weird moment here where Laura is, I don't know how I should describe it. It almost feels like she's possessed briefly or something where she she has like this furious crazed look in her eyes when she's talking to Harold and she says, fire walk with me. And then there's like that jump scare where she's in black and white makeup for a second. And we're going to see later on towards the end of the film a shot of Leland also in the black and white makeup, I believe as he's, I think like as he's approaching Glastonbury Grove, what, I mean, what, what is that about? <laughs> what do we think about that? I don't know if, if that's supposed to be Laura's doppelganger or if we're just sort of seeing like a glimpse of her, her dark sociopathic side uh, mm-hmm. actually personified as as you know what that looks like um but in, in it's shown similar like it, it's obviously the same makeup that leland has but it's shown similarly to a lot of these like mouth shots of the like lodge beings um whether they're eating the creamed corn or just like towards the end of the film there's a lot of the shot different shots of like jumping man's mouth and uh i don't know it's it's like a similar one of those where I think it's just sort of evoking this concept of uh, Laura's darkness and just sort of characterizing it as this really scary 
uh, Winkies-esque jump scare. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also, now that I'm thinking about it, there's also the Wyndham Earl shot, too, right? Where he has, like, the same sort of makeup on. Right. That, oh, that is Wyndham Earl, that's right. Yeah. That, that's right. I think that what you just said this ties right in, because right before that, that shot is, what does Bob, he says, Harold says, what does Bob want? She says, he he wants to be me or he'll kill me and he says other things too and then he's like what does he say and then she says fire walk with me or whatever so that jump scare happens right after he she tells him he wants to be me or he'll kill me so i kind of take it as that's yeah what evil laura would look like or like that's right. that's what laura would look like if bob was inside her but again it's just a flat like because like, uh, leland is the same uh, at the end and that's that's when he kind of howls at the moon and that's when the mm-hmm. doors the curtain curtains appear so people think like fear and love open the door there's also the the idea of Wyndham Earl having the black lips and the black teeth because he's out supposedly looking for Glastonbury Grove and people think that the that's the scorched engine oil like people drink it uh-huh. to to hmm. uh, maybe that maybe drinking that oil or touching the oil, it has something to do with opening the door. It's just never on screen because we don't see Earl do that. We don't see Leland do that, but Leland's right at the gate. Right. And he, he gives the same kind of, so fear and love open the door. Supposedly they don't really explore that too much more other than the original show. But, but yeah, I think that that Laura Leland and Wyndham Earl white face with uh, black, lips and it just it represents the you know the shadows self the shadow side or something but mm. i think that i think that's what i think it's supposed to harold gets a glimpse of what laura would look or be like with with you know bob inside her or totally possessed or whatever right it's like sort of a it's like a cinematic representation of Laura's fear of becoming Bob. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That, yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she's, yeah. she is frightened by it. Um, even more so than, than Harold. Like, I don't think Harold really reacts to mm-hmm. it. She does. So we can even presume that that is something that she experienced rather than something that actually happened. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so Laura is apparently yeah she she makes out with Harold a little bit before she goes. At this point, it's very clear that Laura is very confused romantically. You know, it's not just like a typical you know teenage promiscuity thing. It's like her emotions are just all over the place, and she is like very much in this tangled web with all of these boys slash men and she is she is in a very manic state at least that's how i feel like it's depicted like i don't think she's actually i don't think she actually is like in love with any of these people but it's like she's just sort of reaching out for affection any way that she can find it i guess yep agree 100 percent So, hey, guys, we're actually going to cut this episode short right here. We're going quite long, and as I'm sure you've noticed, we're actually not that far into the movie yet. 
Uh, so what we've decided to do is to split this episode into two parts. And we're going to release the second half of our Fire Walk With Me episode next week, most likely. And uh, Jeremiah, fortunately for us, will be joining us again uh, for that discussion. Um, you know, people who listen to our podcast about the return know that we kind of like to to really sink in and do a pretty deep dive and we're, we're pretty long-winded about this stuff. So it's not surprising that a uh, two-hour, 15-minute movie is going to take up more of our time than an hour-long episode of television. So um, we're having a great time recording this. Um, we love talking about this stuff, and uh, we didn't want to just go ahead and rush the conversation. So we're actually just going to pick it up next week. So, uh, yeah, uh, we hope you guys enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll stick around for part two of our discussion of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Thanks a lot, guys.